Welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and we are sponsored by Filson and Hunt to Eat. Today is a day that you may have been waiting for for quite some time. We're going to talk only about the cooking aspect of small game. So we have done species-specific episodes all year long, but I wanted to spend some time simply talking about what you do after the hunt. I'm joined today by Lori McCarthy from Cod Sounds and Wade Trong from Elevated Wild. Both are excellent, excellent wild game cooks who are also hunters. And they have a lot of really interesting ideas that we're going to go over in an unusually long episode. This episode is going to go a little bit longer because when you get three cooks together and you start talking about what bothers you and what lights a fire underneath you and what you love to do and what you hate to do, the conversation can go down a few tangents and stem winders and all that kind of good stuff. So without further ado, let's get into it and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, welcome to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast, Lori McCarthy and Wade Trong. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing your last name right, but uh, you're going to correct me if I'm not. No, you got it. Perfect. We have a very special episode today. Unlike virtually every other episode of Hunt Gather Talk, this is all about cooking. And I brought you guys on the show because you have different perspectives from mine. You're from different parts of the country. Uh, Wade, you're from Mild Stomping Grounds in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and Lori, you're from up in Newfoundland, well, the in the Maritimes of Canada, which is an entirely different environment and ecosystem than probably most of you out there listening are used to. But there are lots of small game animals up there, as well as in the East Coast, and I think this is going to be just a fun kind of geek out section on <laughs> how you treat everything's smaller than a deer. So let's start with Lori. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, and and your background in terms of being a cook and your connections to small game. Yeah, thanks. Um, yep, so I'm from Newfoundland and uh, born and bred here my whole life. My background in cooking started probably, um, oh, I guess 15, 20 years ago and started in a restaurant and uh, yeah, spent some time there, maybe five, six, seven years and went on to run a personal chef business. Um, and now I run a company called Cod Sounds and the whole purpose of it is to really introduce people to the food of here. So when travelers come here or even um, people from here, uh, it's instructional courses on rabbit butchery and snaring and um, wild game cookery and all that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, and so it's a real, the idea is to introduce them to the cultural foods of here and, you know, not only for where they were and kind of where they're going and where they are in a, in a snapshot in terms of how we're preparing them and how we're cooking them. So, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you and I have been in touch kind of via social media for a, about a couple of years right now. And you're trying to get me out to Newfoundland and I've tried to get to Newfoundland, but I actually... <laughs> I had a deal where I was going to do that, but um, I couldn't go. And then the outfitter took all my money and then uh, I was a little bit bummed about that. Um, but I'll make it out there because it's a, it's a pretty amazing scene. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, we it's amazing to have people come from other places and get them out on the land here. It's um, yeah, it's been often referred to as a pretty magical landscape. So and of course, well, I think so. <laughs> Wade? Um, hi. So I'm from Fredericksburg, Virginia, and um, 
born and raised in Virginia, and my, I guess, culinary background goes pretty far back. My parents had a restaurant when I was uh, 10 or 11, and ended up in various restaurants throughout college and after college, and just recently uh, left the restaurant industry in March. But up until then, I was the exec chef at a, uh, I guess, a quote, fancy restaurant. And um, that's basically that background. It's always been a big part of my, uh, I guess, my upbringing and my culture. And it's just one of those things that fascinates me. So happy to be here and talk about it. How'd you get into hunting? Um, pretty, uh, I guess, selfish starting point. I just wanted to try some food that I couldn't buy. And that came from a, I guess, intrigue of, uh, from sourcing, you know, I was dealing with a lot of farmers and producers and they, their food always tasted the best. And I started realizing that the food with the most stories, you know, was the best food. So I got into hunting in my late twenties or mid twenties, I guess. And it's become something that's, you know, kind of all encompassing. It's like my entire life kind of centers around it right now. I understand how that can happen. Yeah. Did you start as a, as a kid, Lori, or did you start as an adult? I started as an adult. Yeah. Like really recently in the past five years, actually. Um, and yeah, much of the same reason that we talked about, you know, I wanted to put food on my table from here after, you know, from growing up like that, that was, that was normal to us. Um, and then there was this big gap in the middle where you can't access it unless you hunt it yourself. We can't, we don't have game farms here, so we can't buy game here. Um, it's illegal to sell, especially upland birds. And as I found out from a nice phone call from a wildlife officer one time. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was really about wanting to explore it. And, you know, it's been falling off our plates and off our tables, uh, it's, for some people, for some people, it really never left the table. But uh, for us, it was. And I really wanted, to, as I grew up and got my own home, and I wanted to really see it back on the table. So, yeah, exploring, you know, what to do with it now is is been um, an interesting journey, we'll call it, because it was just always cooked so traditionally, right? It was in the pot, gravy, onion, that was it, <laughs> in the oven. So there hasn't been you know, there's been a lot different done with it. So that's really where, you know, I'm focusing on most of the time is like, so we have this amazing product, like how many ways can I prepare it? That will be awesome. And then lots of those ways turn out not to be awesome. <laughs> as we all know, we'll get into that, the, <laughs> the trial and error of all this stuff. So it's, what's interesting is all three of us started hunting as adults. Uh, I started when I was 30. Um, and that was, God, it's 20 years ago now. Uh, all of us have spent time in professional kitchens and all of us probably got into this because we saw that the opportunity for cooking in terms of being creative and doing something different and interesting with a, a, a protein to use the cook jargon that you, like as you said, Lori, that you can't buy. Mm -hmm. That's really kind of what got me into this, you know, initially back when I lived in Minnesota, my friend Chris Niskanen, who was just on this podcast in the pheasant episode, 
he's the one who started to butter me up by saying, hey, man, you want some pheasant? You want some mallards? You want a piece of deer? And I'm like, sure, because I had grown up in the New York, New Jersey area. And I, my mom and my stepdad really loved to eat good food. And since I was the last kid and there was a gap, right? So it was just them plus me. And, you know, if you've got a little kid who likes good food, you can take that little kid to places like Le Cirque or, you know, any of the grand French restaurants of the late 70s and early 80s. And, and I was exposed to game like that. So like my nice. first. Yeah, right. It's none yeah. of those ovens and gravy crap. <laughs> like <laughs> it was like, you know, pheasant under glass and, you know, right. and, and confit and that sort of stuff. So I grew up like, man, game is where it's at. It's like the most special thing you can get. And Hank, you started like high. (laughs) Right? You had, yeah, you had to really hone your skills. Well, what's funny is because when I started Hunter Angler Gardener Cook in 07, a lot of my recipes and dishes were super pinky in the air, you know, Um, not necessarily tweezers, but like a lot of the French classics, like Civet de Livre. Um, you know, all of the fancy, fancy stuff. And it, they're still there on the site, but I've evolved a lot in the, that time. And I bet you, you guys have all sort of had your evolution as well. But before we get into kind of your approach, let's start with the, the what's on the menu. And, and so, Wade, what's kind of on your small game menu over the course of the year in terms of, of things that you work with in the kitchen? Um, well, being on the East Coast, we don't have a lot of upland anything. I've gone grouse hunting once or twice, but, you know, it's just not a thing. Uh, we don't have pheasants. So it's mostly dove, squirrel, some rabbits, and a lot of waterfowl. Uh, all those are, you know, right up your wheelhouse. So, you know, I'm sure you have the same experience with them, but that's primarily it. Um... I wish we could do a little more, you know, white meat, uh, upland bird, but it's not really on the menu here. There's some quail way in southern Virginia. I remember I remember people hunting them down there by like Halifax. Yeah, w- the farm that uh, I spent a lot of time at, there are some quail, but they're kind of off limits because they're slowly making a comeback, but the landowner doesn't want to, you know, start cutting them back quite yet. <laughs> A little funny side note, because it's funny that you say that, because I think anybody here listening to this, but you know, in the United States where quail live, that happens all the time. There are, I can't tell you how many times I have had permission to hunt X or Y piece of ground in California, in Kansas, in the East Coast, or wherever, wherever, and they're like, oh, but don't touch my quail. You can hunt anything but the quail. And it's, I think there's this dual thing going on with that particular set of species number one they're adorable which you know if you don't think a quail is adorable there's something dead inside you (laughs) number two there is this kind of elegiac nostalgia for the era when bobwhite quail were everywhere and they're just not anymore And and i went into that in depth in the bobwhite quail episode and it's all farming practices and where they are returning, it is all about managed agricultural habitat. And I'm betting that Virginia, interestingly, because of their farm practices, they don't do clean farming like they do in California. You guys have a really 
good future for people who actually want to manage for Bob Whites where, say, somebody in Iowa may not because of the nature of farming practices. But that's a that's kind of a weird tangent. No, I think you're uh, you're absolutely right about that. I think it's one of those you know shifting baselines that the people who used to hunt quail have seen the you know decline of this species and now that they're seeing you know a little bit of recovery you know it's not quite to the heyday so they don't feel all that comfortable you know going after it the way they used to because um the landowner um you know would describe going goose hunting in the morning and then going and shooting a limited quail right afterwards and that was you know an average day hunting and now you know you flush a covey of quail and it's like a big deal so i think the you know the perspective on the resource has changed quite a bit and you know like i'm happy to oblige and just leave it alone for now yep they'll come back oh and before i switch to Lori's menu you got you got wild turkeys too right oh yeah no i forgot to mention that um i love turkey hunting that's that's probably the uh the thing i'm most obsessed with right now so you don't have turkeys in Newfoundland, but you've got. If I'm, if the correct, you, I'm going to go over what I think you have, and then you're going to tell me where I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I think you've got ruffed grouse, you've got willow ptarmigan, rock ptarmigan, um, snowshoe hares. I think there's some other kind of bunny up there too. And the Arctic hare. The Arctic hare. Okay. Yeah. So is that basically what you've got up there, or are there other things I'm missing? Um. No, that, I mean, grouse, right? I don't know if you mentioned grouse as them. Yeah, you did, yes. But no, we got no pheasants. We don't hunt squirrel here. The only squirrel we got are like these little tiny red squirrels. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, teeny tiny. Um, we don't have quail. We don't have dove. We don't have turkey. <laughs> so there's a lot of duck, a lot of, you know, black duck and um, eider duck, teal ducks, uh, geese. We just have the one. We just have the Canada goose. And, and the ptarmigans and the grouse are probably the... You know, th- those are our only real main real, uh, upland birds. And you got the two different bunnies, right? And the two different bunnies, yeah. And um, we have and, you know, the saltwater ducks are a big deal here too, right? And the the turs and eider ducks, um, those are big turs. in season too. Oh, turs, because you can't shoot turs in the United States. You're... No, so we have a there's a special law in place here where as a citizen here, you're um, you know as a resident here, you're actually it's the cultural that's been sort of grandfathered in that turs are still allowed to be hunted and are, uh, you know, considered still a delicacy amongst local people. Puffins too, right? We have puffins. We can't eat the puffins now. Oh no. Okay. No, the puffins are like, well, they're like our bird of ends up on every tourism commercial around the world. <laughs> so yes, people, uh, no, can't eat them here. Well, it's funny because I went down to New Zealand some years ago and one of the express reasons why they wanted me down there i mean we were going down there to hunt mostly waterfowl but as soon as we got in contact with our friends in new zealand they're like we need you to cook and eat some pukikos and so if you don't know what a pukiko is it's if for those of you in the gulf in the florida area you'll recognize it as a purple gallinule and it's a like a giant coot basically that's bright purple with a bright red beak and they walk around and, and marches and things. Well, these pukikos are fiendishly smart. They're essentially little purple velociraptors. 
<laughs> and they talk to each other. It's crazy. So like you shoot one and, and it's like, oh, I'm dead. And then somebody else would be like, what happened to Louie? And, <laughs> and they'll all call around each other. And then it'll be devilishly hard to get another one. Um, but they, this is the, this is their bird that is, I mean, obviously they have the Kiwi because they're called the Kiwis, but, but the Pukiko is their charismatic bird, very much like the Puffin. And so I went on national television to cook and eat Pukikos and apparently everyone was like, oh my God. (laughs) But for the record, they were delicious. Nice. I want to talk about turds before we get into like stuff that anybody else can eat. So I have not made a career out of, but I have made a note of the fact that people from Newfoundland uh, and the Nordic countries have this habit of eating sea ducks and seabirds with the skin and fat. Which, I know this is a huge thing for you. <laughs> yes, it is a huge thing for me. I mean, it, it's one of these things where I, I no, a thousand times no, because it uh, smells like farts and low tide. Yeah, it smells like rotten mussels. Oh, yeah, I know. Um, it always kills me that I, you know, when I have, when we have otter ducks, the breasts on them are enormous. Yeah. But then there's so little else that you could do with the rest of them. Then that's only my generation who thinks that. And be honest, you know, the people who are in my generation who are still eating it are few and far between. But traditionally, it's much like the Faroe Islands and that with the puffin up there and that it was all um, almost boiled or roasted. Uh, yeah. And it was always done with the fat. And, I'll, and with the skin on, I mean, to pluck a tur or an otter duck is, mom would always say, you'd need a bottle of rum with you, right? So it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite the task. And people who do it are meticulous about it. And the locals are only, you know, the old people who want them, they don't want them any other way except plucked. I can't, I just, I can't get over the, the, the taste and smell, though. I mean. I know, you almost got to leave the house. Yeah. <laughs> oh i mean it's just it's it's all what you grew up what you grew up with though i mean i'm that sure i am sure there's something stinky and delicious in your background wade because i know that for me it would be the really stinky and but delicious thing that i don't care would probably be french cheeses would be the thing that would probably put off a lot of people outside my culinary personal tradition i mean there's well it's like in the japanese have natto which if you're not familiar with it it's vile it's it's rotten soybeans it's like as sticky as okra and as stinky as bo yeah i mean i think every culture has something that's extremely odd to every other culture but i grew up with a lot of um like fermented fish and a lot of paste and fermented, you know, just everything in the fridge. Uh, you know, my parents being from Vietnam. So, you know, that kind of like super pungent, uh, umami rich kind of like overwhelming, uh, food is, you know, just kind of what it is. And I think it's hard to, get people to accept these things until you point out like how weird their food is. <clears throat> so I don't know. I mean, I've got some Menhaden fish sauce working right now and don't get me wrong. It's terrifying looking. Well, it's interesting because I've, I learned how to make fish sauce as well. And the whole key with fish sauce is getting the right salt content. Cause if you, if you're low, uh, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> 
yeah. <laughs> it's just revolting. It's just, but if you're right, um, it looks horrible. But once you strain it out, it's almost not even fishy. Yeah. No, I think, um, you know, it, it does have good branding. You know, it's like fish sauce and fish drippings. <laughs> you know, it's a, right? but it's it's such an original and antiquated and just old condiment. You know, it's like one of the first condiments that was, you know, adapted by so many different cultures. And I think it's just very recently, like most American cuisine, you know, it's gone out of favor, you know, like that's one of my, I guess, driving factors for what I do is, you know, the American palate has become so ubiquitous, you know, it's like five proteins and everything tastes like corn and sugar. And I don't know, like, I think everything we've talked about here, like wild game is so variable and has so many different nuanced flavors that it's actually interesting versus, you know, grain finished, whatever again. Let's go into that because I, I, it is something that is a fundamental reality when you're dealing with wild foods is, is the way I always put it is you have to embrace chaos because every animal that you work with is not like every other animal you work with. I mean, there are some, there are some truisms like 99% of all doves are young. 99% of all snowshoe hares are young. Um, there are, but then there you deal with waterfowl and you've got a great huge age difference. You've got a species difference, you know, everything from a black duck to an eider to a Canada goose to pintails to canvas backs and whatever, whatever. So you've got an age difference that we all have to deal with as cooks. You've got a species difference, which we all have to deal with as cooks. And you have a, a regional and even individual diet preference that we have to deal with as cooks. So, I mean, there could be, you could shoot seven mallards and five of them are nice and fat and wonderful. And two of them are skinny for some reason. Or you could eat, shoot seven mallards. And one of them just happens to really like to pick dead fish off the beach. And the rest of them like grain. So you're like, oh, these are amazing. And then there's the one that likes to eat tadpoles. And <laughs> you're like, oh. Uh, so how do you guys deal with this chaos in the kitchen? Let's start with, uh, start with you, Lori. Um, the ducks are interesting that we don't have grain fields here, right? So we don't get that gorgeous yellow fat that, you know, you get in, you know, in corn season or whatever with the ducks. Like our ducks here are... They're either water ducks that are just eaten, not that all ducks are not, but they're not eaten. They're not, they don't get fattened up on the cornfields because we just don't have them and we don't grow grain here because, you know, where it's a very rocky terrain here, mostly um, thick brush and rock and water. And so, yeah, it creates a different, like, I don't know, I've never really seen heavy fat on a duck here, you know, outside of, again, the, the, uh, the, the saltwater ducks. Um Ptarmigan are are interesting in that, you know, we can only get them in October and November. I think it shuts down in December. But the um, ptarmigan are always really strong. Uh, and when you open them up, which, you know, the first thing I do, I open it up, see what it's been eaten, so then I can find more. <laughs> but they're usually, it's mostly dyed juniper berries and um, uh, partridge berries. And that creates a really strong flavor. And no matter what you do to it, you're going to taste that on it when you cook it. So like everything, you know, like Wade was saying about flavor and that we've just become so accustomed to everything, you know, chicken and 
and white pork and white chicken. I mean, yeah, so you got to go out of your way to kind of want to enjoy this stuff. Um, and, you know, again, that's a lot of why I do it because people, the, the simple stuff that you do to it is and to serve it, people are, have never really eaten it or tasted it like that. So, you know, when I got a group of people out or I'm doing one of these eat it while dinners and, you know, seven courses a game, you got a job to sell that to some people. Um, but once they come and eat it, it's usually, wow, I never knew that it tasted like that. When, when I was growing up, it it stunk in the house and it was like, oh, mom would cook it. We didn't want anything to do with it. But, you know, they'll go out to some of the best restaurants like like you grew up eating it. And so your introduction to it was that it was an absolute amazing deliciousness. Right. Um, so, yeah, they're they're just strong. And like I I approach it by going with it instead of going against it and not trying to hide it, more just trying to accentuate it. Right. So, you know, if I'm doing ptarmigan it's often with a partridge berry chutney so you got that bit of tang in it um it's super rich of course uh, but it's so lean like again our birds our birds don't have much fat on them so yeah i just kind of go with it i guess <laughs> and either people will go for it or they won't how about you wade um i think you know very similar philosophy it's just kind of embrace the variability you know like don't get me wrong, if I, you know, have a mallard or any other duck that should be fairly clean tasting, but like, like you said, it's been eating tadpoles or dead fish, you know, that one gets pushed to the side after we pluck it. But um, I think, uh, you know, my whole approach to wild game is to enjoy it for what it is and not try to mask it. You know, I think that's one of the reasons I got into cooking wild games like when i first started i was reading a lot and doing research on how to cook you know x y or z and you know every recipe is the same it's was the same um cream mushroom soup you know soda marinades you know etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's like everybody was trying to make these make this variable food more plain and more like everything else they've been eating and there's this weird juxtaposition in that like people seek out this very bland food but at the you know on the quote high end of the culinary scene it's like people are seeking out that variability you know like you want a real cork in your 500 hundred dollar bottle of wine because it might fail and you want to try things that are not grain finished you know so it's just it's just it was strange to me that people were taking this incredible resource and trying to make it taste like everything else they've been eating so you know my like i said my philosophy is just embrace it and work around the protein versus trying to make it or force it into something that it's not as my friend Joe Bio, who's from Alabama, likes to say, oh, man, tell you what, take that deer meat, stick it in a cooler, cover it with ice water about 17 days, change the water every <laughs> six or seven days. Oh, man, gets all white, gets lovely, <laughs> tastes like nothing. You can chicken fry it. It's amazing. And like, oh, he knows yeah. people who do that all the time. <laughs> In one of the other um, – one of the things I've noticed – well, that has changed, too, is how we handle these meats and how we store them. Like, for example, you know, that story exactly, right? You know, when we... Um, Did you do that in Canada? What's that? Like, soak venison or other meats in ice water? 
Never heard of it. Not say okay. it don't happen now, but I never it's heard of it. It's a southern thing. Okay. But here, the, you know, you take a bunch of birds and they're throwing the back of the truck and it's all about how it was taken care of, right? I mean, you're getting, there's people out there now getting into all kinds of, you know, hanging the bird with the gut in and letting it, letting it cure and letting it, you know, whatever the process is. But lots of times here, like the cleaning of it was also about, when it was done properly, it was about removing all that fat, right? So lots of times, I mean, it's a total, you know, preference, right? But for instance, like the eider ducks, right? You can skin them and take all the heavy, all the yellow fat off them that tastes like mussels. But um, lots of times if you leave it on and then they're in the fridge for a couple of days or they're froze and thawed and in the back of a truck and it's, you know, we, and it's probably for us, the three of us who have come from, you know, kitchen backgrounds, we know how much to handle it and taking care of the meat every step of the way makes all the difference. Like when I cook moose for people now, or, you know, it's, my God, I never knew it could taste like that. I'm like, yeah, because the only way you've ever had it, I mean, it could have been hung up at a shed for two weeks in not so cold weather. And the same with the birds, you know, so is a lot of educa- there's a lot of education now around how to handle the birds every step of the way. And I think that's really made a difference. I, def- I think so, too. And let- we're going to get into some field tips in a minute. But the before we close out kind of the variability piece, one of the things that I noticed and I have noticed over the 20 some odd years I've been cooking game is you become a student of any given animal in the sense that I can look at a bunch of squirrels. And I'm like, OK, well, this one's fat and this one's not fat. This one's older. Uh, I'm going to, you know, a a fox squirrel may be significantly fatter than a, a, a eastern gray squirrel and this duck versus that duck. You develop a, a mental picture of how this present is going to be once it's unwrapped, whether it's skinned or plucked. And you end up thinking about a specific dish for X or Y animal in the process of, of, of cleaning it, essentially. So... You know, if you end up with uh, half a dozen Canada geese, well, A, some Canada geese might have been shot up. So that's going to be a whole different bucket from the ones that you pluck. B, you could shoot a young one. And a young one, you could do a roast goose, sort of English or German style with that. An old one, you know, and my point is that you get to know, well, this is a young one or that is an old one. And this is true with rabbits as well. You can, you can pretty successfully age uh, snowshoe hares and regular hares. I don't know about Arctic hares, but I can't see why not. By looking, A, at the teeth, um, old teeth look like old teeth, and looking at the ears, too. Uh, You can tear the ears with your fingers on a young lagomorph of any kind, so whether it's a cottontail or a hare, and you, you have a hard time tearing the ears off of older individuals. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah. And you can look at the covert feathers on any given bird and every every bird that I know of. Now, there could be some that don't do this, but the young of the year of any given species of of waterfowl and most upland birds, you look at their shoulders, you look at the feathers on their shoulders and younger birds have a, a buffy or a lighter colored band on the end of those particular feathers. So if it's a gray bird of whatever species. And you look at the set of feathers on the shoulders, and they're gray all the way to the ends. That's a that's an adult bird. But if they're gray for the most part, and there's a little bit of a kind of a typically it's tan or buffy, 
but it's it can be other colors. It can just be a lighter version of what that bird should be. Much like when you gather spruce tips or fir tips, you know that the young ones are lighter in color. It's the same concept. Then that is a young of the year bird, and then that goes into a different mental bucket of how I'm probably going to cook it. And right. Yeah, you know, so you yeah. get all of this different chaotic variables that that stress people because they're so used to cooking you know, farmed meats where this is the thing where with sous vide and you know i mean I'd, I'd be interested to hear you guys concept on sous vide too i have moved far far away from it after having experimented with it about seven or eight years ago in the sense that because of this chaos and because of this variability the only way to really check x y or z to make sure that it's not overdone because i don't know about you but i have had some disgusting sous vide game that has been cooked (laughs) for hours and hours and hours because people erroneously think that if you cook something at 140 degrees fahrenheit well it's not going to overcook because it's never going to get above 140 degrees fahrenheit well dude if you put that elk backstrap in for seven hours at 140 degrees you're going to be able to eat it with gums it's going to (laughs) be Yeah, it's gonna be. This happened at my in my book tour for the for the venison book, and and so my my issue with sous vide is that it can be useful in certain circumstances, but because of the chaos that we deal with with true wild game, the only way to truly check it is to open that bag, and no one does that. So I have moved away from that method. It's also a case where I'm a good enough cook where I don't need it anymore. There's one exception which I want to put out there is with black bear or black bear meat because of the concept of trichinosis you can pasteurize say black bear backstrap at 140 degrees fahrenheit for a couple of hours where you can eat medium you know cooked medium bear and not get trichinosis because of that pasteurization process that's the only you know 100 percent. i'm always going to do that place where i'm going to use sous vide everywhere else i'm like eh, i can cook it better in a pot or in a pan but I, i'd yeah. like to hear your guys perspective because i know you use um sous vide wade yeah um you know i i i have a lot of experience with uh sous vide especially you know on a commercial scale you know there's, there's no way to beat the convenience of it to you know dial in steaks and cook large batches of things but I think it's like most trendy tools is it gets overused. Like, I don't know. I've seen green beans in a sous vide bag, and I think it's about the dumbest thing there is. <laughs> but, you know, like any other tool, it has its strengths and weaknesses. And I like combining as many, I guess, processes and techniques as possible and using the one that fits my application the most like if i'm cooking a big dinner for multiple people and there's multiple courses and i'm serving backstrap in there somewhere like i'll probably sous vide the backstrap so i can chill it down have it ready and i can just sear it when i need it especially if i'm putting a crust or a coating or something on there where i just want that meat you know at the right temp and all i have to do is warm up the outside let me stop you for a second because you have hit on the reason why sous vide exists. It, it was oh. developed in the late 70s in, in France for big ass commercial restaurant kitchens where 
we exactly have to do that. We've got to do backstrap for 70, <laughs> yeah. not six. So that's people out there need to understand that this is why we use sous vide in restaurants is because we have pickup. We, you know, you, you have to, so if somebody orders it, you can't spend like X amount of time doing it, or you've got to do a bunch of them for banquet service. So yeah. go on. No, I agree with that. Uh, but I think it's true strength is not in cooking meats to a certain temperature, especially tender meats like backstrap and steaks and whatnot. Cause like, like you said, if you, if you're passionate about food and you know how to cook, you can do that better. You know, basting a steak with butter and getting it to whatever temperature you want, I think it's a better way of cooking a tender piece of meat. But I think where it really shines is <clears throat> undercooking tough cuts of meat. Like you take a shank and you want it still red and you do it at, say, 135 for X amount of time, and it has that steaky texture the steaky look, you know, it's still kind of bloody, but it's as tender, but different than, say, a traditional braise. That's something that can't be replicated with most traditional cooking methods. Um, so I don't know. That's my my take on it. It's a tool in the kitchen. It has some excellent um, uses. I use it to finish a lot of my smoked sausages and pastrami and things like that things i don't want them you know i don't like manning a grill and paying attention to a thermometer so <clears throat> a lot of things i do get cold smoked sous vide at target temperature and then dunked in ice you know you never overcook any summer sausage or anything like that so it's a tool like everything else in the kitchen i think a lot like an instapot people get it and it's the new shiny thing and they want to put everything in it and that's, you know, it's not a smart way of doing things. How about you, Laurie? Do you sous vide at all? No. And my when I left the restaurant industry, you know, 15 years ago, it just never existed here. Um, even in the top restaurants, it, it wasn't here. And, you know, the restaurant that I worked in was what you'd call a, you know, high-end fine dining restaurant. But it just never existed. I can see the utility of it after going on to do, you know, large-scale caterings and that kind of stuff. And like Wade said, like it's – it takes away that um, for someone who's a good cook, like you've said, you almost I don't see it as having much of a practical use in the home. It's kind of it's a gadget and I try to keep away from gadgets because I, I have to find somewhere to put them then in my kitchen. Um, again, I can see the use, but no one's coming home from supper and making a sous vide something. And then, you know what I mean? And so when you write your cookbooks and, you know, the stuff that you're making approachable. And I think that, you know, the same way when I develop recipes where I'm cooking for people is more about making it approachable. And I don't, I don't think it's very approachable for, you know, the home cook. I don't know. Again, I have <laughs> people who have it, it just becomes something that gets stuck in the end of the cupboard and they keep hoping to take it out someday and use it. But I don't think they do. <laughs> I always view it as kind of like canning. Whenever, if, if any yes. of you have started canning, you can 17 gallons of peaches and you're like, nice. Six years later, you're like, I really only needed like a, a gallon of peach. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it yeah. kind of shrinks back to what it's useful for. And you mentioned something, Wade, that uh, was another piece that's very useful. I do like sous vide corned venison um, because that's a really good example of you kind of want it soft and you don't want it to be overcooked. And, and it, that's that's a, one of those other few things where you it's the one gallon of peaches. It's like, OK, that too. Yeah, I mean, I think there are specific 
recipes and applications where I couldn't think of a better way of cooking the protein. Um, but, you know, 90% of the time, you know, I prefer to cook over some burning wood, you know, like it's, it's not one or the other, you know, I think that's one thing that people in general, you know, struggle with is like, there's not a best way for everything. Uh, right. There's multiple ways to do everything. So if you're looking for, you know, I don't know how many people, I think I've seen it on your website, actually. It's like, how do I do this recipe in a Instant Pot? And it's like, well, you don't, right? Because you don't have to use <clears throat> your one new tool for everything. You know, like you don't need to cook pasta in a pressure cooker. Mm. People so, do? Well, <laughs> I think I saw that on your website, actually. Somebody <laughs> asking a question about it. I think your response was uh, pretty clever, too. But I, I often have like, huh? <laughs> yeah. No, but that's the thing. It's like you you get something new, you want to use it for everything, which is understandable, but it's not always the best way. You know, I think the sous vide is new enough and cheap enough and readily available enough and trendy enough that people overuse it and you don't generally get bad results. So, you know, people stick with it, but it's just another tool. And, you know, just like everything else, like, it's not it's like an adjustable wrench well it's not like an adjustable wrench but it's so not the best tool for everything hey everybody i'd like to take this time to thank filson for sponsoring the hunt gather talk podcast as you may know i wear their gear in the field all the time i love their vests i love their outerwear their tin cloth jacket is awesome definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades and all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. Let's flip the script. Fire. So I think all three of us like to cook over open fire. And what would you offer as a couple, two, three, you need to know this if you're going to cook over live fire to the listeners out there uh, in terms of cooking small game. So let's start with Lori. Um, you need to know the wood you're using, right? So you don't want to use softwoods. You want to use hardwoods. That's absolutely top of the list. Picking your you wood. You don't like turpentine? No, not so much. <laughs> so that's a lot of uh, here in Newfoundland, woods are full of uh, fir and spruce. So lots of time I mean, when you go in the woods hunting, that's what you're making a fire with. But most people who go in the woods hunting are not cooking their game over fire like that. They're bringing in bald meat or canned meat um, into the woods. But, yeah, know what your wood is. Stick to hardwoods. We don't have a lot of hardwood here in Newfoundland, mostly birch. Um, and the maple is all brought in, and that's pretty much our, our staple hardwood. And then you really got to burn it down until – you can't cook with flame. Stop cooking meat on flame. <laughs> so for me, you know, you can have your super hot zone, but still built up with with coals. And then you got to have your slower. So it's, you know, it's either the sear first and the slower cook or the slow cook and the sear at the end. I haven't really determined which if there's a preference, but I've done both. It seems to uh, 
I haven't had any terrible results. But game is so it's so lean that it really can't take high heat for very long because it just turns into this, you know, crust of, of, yeah, inedible food. So I love the smoke too, right? So I'll often pull it back off the fire. Um, But again, the smoke you're looking to put on it is, you hear people smoking with juniper and stuff. I mean, it's all right for a short blast of smoke, but again, the turpentine is too much, right? So you want to stay away from those terpenes in the, in the wood. I bet you have black willow up there too. I wouldn't be able to confirm that, to be honest. I don't know. Uh, we so do I, have willow. I don't know if it's black willow that we have. Um, I know the Cree um, in Manitoba smoke almost exclusively over black willow. And it's it's about the same latitude, but of course okay. it's about a thousand miles to the west. A lot of the smoke here is used um, – a lot of people in Labrador use the black the blackberry bush or the crowberry bush is called, and we've done it here and I've used it on on meats is really nice. It's, but it's just a it's a low like Arctic tundra bush, um, and uh, yeah and it's so it's usually damp, and so you get the dampness that kind of keeps the keeps it smoldering. It's mm-hmm. a really nice and it's you know in the spring of the year when you go in the woods here it's one of the first things that you smell is this gorgeous scent of the blackberry bushes starting to grow and it's really nice very cool wade tips for uh, open fire cooking um so most of my open fire cooking is done in a like a 15 year old weber that's barely held together and Fair. and i just pack it full of hardwood usually oak or you know whatever else i've laying around and the most of the stuff i cook over fire is tender like back straps goose breast, duck breast, um, doves, uh, young rabbits, you know, very young squirrels. Um, once it gets into like a tougher cut of meat, you know, it's more about getting those embers and, you know, maintaining a, a radiant heat and cooking it a little slower. But I do love just getting a rip roaring fire going and just, you know, really charring a piece of meat and just flipping it like every 15, 20 seconds and just getting a nice crust on there and letting it rest up. But, okay. I'll have to try that now. <laughs> I get, and what cuts of meat would you use to do that with? Like, do you, would you do that with a breast? Oh uh, yeah. Like yeah. Goose breast. Uh, in particular. It's funny. My first thought was a Canada goose breast. Yeah, yeah. me too. Cause, cause well, the fat, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean that it, all that fat starts rendering and dripping in and you get more smoke and spattering and, you know, it's just, there's something very primal about it. You know, it smells great. It's interactive and it's fast. Um, but like I said, it works with anything tender, you know, like I think high heat applications and tender meats, you know, that's the way to do it. You know, you don't need to cook, you know, stuff that's soft for a very long time. You're not going to yield a better result. So high heat for tender stuff and, you know, take a little more time and, you know, build a nice base of coals basically with the hardwoods when I'm cooking something that's a little tougher. These are all good points. Uh, The only thing I'm going to add to that right now is if you're cooking over true open fire, and I experienced this up in the boreal forest of Alberta, we built a fire and we had the rocks around it and everything to to hold the heat in to create a kind of a semi-oven effect. Well, what I had found were several big flat rocks. And I had put the flat rocks, I put one as kind of a shelf 
where the fire was underneath and to the side of it. And another one in front of the fire area where it was essentially, it became kind of a, a weird flat top where the fire was in front of the rock. So it was radiant heat from one side as if being in the front of a, of a fireplace. Nice. And we had several spruce grouse and roughed grouse that I had plucked and we had had some just rippingly good butter, uh, some cultured butter from down in the southern part of the province. And I slicked up the birds and I put them on the rock and I salted them. And what was really mind-blowing and amazing was you're in the middle of the singular bush, as my friend Kevin likes to put it. Uh, he's from Alberta, which is – so the Americans don't use the term the bush, um, well, at least not in the in the PG-rated sense. Um, <laughs> but so, but it's, a, it's an English-speaking term, and then the entire rest of the English-speaking word is the wilderness or the woods or whatever, the bush. So you don't want to mess this thing up because we had shot these birds, and this is going to be dinner for tonight. So I, I bring this up because I was sort of fussing over them. I didn't want them to overcook. But what I found was truly interesting and amazing was that because you had this radiant heat and this flat rock that the bottom of the rock got hot and the butter was sizzling on it and the butter was cooking on the bird itself, you could then maneuver this bird or the birds exactly the way you needed to so that every bit would get cooked correctly, which you can't really do as easily if it's on a grate over a fire. And because you have this issue of the direct heat coming right at it and you've got the grates and the end result was even though I had to kind of nudge the birds here and there and turn them on one side or the other over the course of 20 minutes, they were arguably some of the greatest grouse that I had ever eaten. And it was only doable because of this uh, flexibility of being able to move the bird. And I, and I translated that into uh, a pan roasting technique that works almost as well with, you know, in, in a kitchen in a pan where you only the difference is you spatchcock the bird and so that you've got the crown of the breast with the skin on it and the, and the dramats. So the first wing, the first digit of the wings, and then the other pieces in the pan are the, the leg thigh combinations. And that kind of ability to manipulate really, really kind of, took things to another level. Nice. So I think one thing that we should talk about is getting birds right. So if you are faced with a whole plucked, well, let's, before I'm, let me start, let me stop this for a second. Everybody out there, you cannot roast a whole skin bird, period, end of story. Period, end of story. <laughs> Right. Like everyone, I get asked this uh, on a weekly basis in bird season. I'm like, hey, I skinned my pheasant. How do I roast it? Like, you don't. Sorry. Like, right. yes, you could make a lattice of bacon over it, but then you're eating bacon flavored, you know, whatever. Mm. And this is why people get turned off from the meats, because it's not it's it's how it's cooked. And then it's how it's prepared and how it's handled. And and then you end up with, yeah, people say, Mike, I had that once. I'm like, I wasn't fit to eat in Newfoundland. That's a common term. Or that's not fit to eat. So, yeah. but what we're trying to do is, is you know, put it on the plate so that it is fit to eat. And there are just some hard rules. And that's one of them. 
Yes. So, okay. So, Lori, if you're faced with uh, a beautiful brace of plucked ruffed grouse, how are you going to make them perfect? I'm going to take the legs off and pro- and just do a slow roast on the legs. And oh. usually then I'll just I'll pull all the um, pull all the meat off it and then I'll turn it into I mean, it can be like a, just a mushroom and rough grab pulled rough grouse pasta or something pretty simple so that you're not drowning it in, you know, in too much flavor because the, I love the dark meat on the legs and in the breast. You know what? I don't do much with the breast. Sear it in the pan. Lots of butter. Um, I love partridge berries in on it or, you know, anything that the bird eats and just a bit of red wine. I mean, it's not, again, the simplest little things impress people. <laughs> and when you come from working in, in kitchens in that time, everything was red wine sauce and cream sauce. And it was really just, you know, flooded in it. So now I just, it's just sauces to accentuate. And it's just a little bit of it. But yeah, I just serve a medium rare and slice really thin. And everyone's not getting like two breasts of meat. That's the other thing too, is like, you know, these game meats are so rich that you really, you're looking at having more of everything else on your plate than the amount of meat sometimes. That's kind of how I, my approach to it. So, you know, four or six roughed grouse legs, by the time that gets whipped up into a dish, I can serve eight people with that. Interesting. So you do not serve uh, whole, whole birds uh, as a rule. As a rule, like with a grouse is a bit different. Like a, a grouse, I can put in the oven on, you know, 400 and do that, do that roast with it. But it's you're still you're not cooking it till the legs are, you know, the meat's falling off the legs and you're not cooking it till the breast is cooked all the way through. But you can like a, a small rough grouse, you can throw in on 400 for 15 minutes. And yet it's all OK, but I'm still with you on it's not it's not the best way to eat it. <laughs> Interesting. I actually do like birds the size of ruffed grouse in smaller mm. uh, done whole. Uh, so here's my issue with with a lot of the gallinaceous birds, uh, even going up to the size of a turkey. When you pick a duck and you break a duck or a goose down, the nature of their breastbone is such that your your boneless half of a duck breast has pretty good skin coverage. It works. It doesn't really work with gallinaceous birds. So none of the grouse, none of the quail, none of the turkeys, um, because they, they if you if you can picture in your mind's eye a waterfowl's keel bone and breastplate is a T. A chicken like bird's keel bone and breastplate is a Y. And because of that, when you break a bird down, you're gonna get a, a fairly substantial gap. Of where of skin coverage where that breast met the thigh, and there's really almost no way to to go around it unless you completely sacrifice the skin off the the, the leg, and give yourself this weird extra flap. And it's I've tried it; it's a super big pain in the ass to do. So typically, if you want that crispy skin on, say, a pheasant or a grouse or a turkey, you kind of have to cook it whole. Um, now that said, I often break my birds down and, and I make crispy skin tacos because mm. because tacos. But very <laughs> because tacos. Yeah. Um, but so then the the question is how do you finagle, you know, something a, approaching perfection with that whole grouse or quail or or partridge or whatever? And and I have managed to do it with this pan searing method. 
again, because you're, you can spoon hot fat in the nooks and crannies, and that will cook the various bits to, to well, not perfection, but, but close to it. The other way to really cheat uh, is I have a thing called a searzol, which is like a blowtorch attached to a, a piece of metal. And so it cooks through radiant heat, but you can direct the radiant heat on anywhere of the bird you want. And that's super cool. I mean, that's if I'm doing if I'm if I were to cook whole grouse for you two, I would whip out the sears all because I want to impress you. I don't necessarily <laughs> do it on a Wednesday. Um, but so that my other our rule for roasting whole birds is the smaller the bird, the higher the heat to the point right. where I will try to roast snipe and and like little birds like snipe. And I guess what would the other real small one be? I guess quail at a close to 600 if I can. Nice. And then the big, the bigger the bird, the lower you can go. So Wade, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? Um, very similar to what both of you have said, you know, small birds, I do like roasting whole and the bigger they get, you know, like obviously like, like a dove whole, there's, there's almost like nothing that could go wrong there. Right. You know, a little crispy, tiny bird, but, um, the bigger the bird, I think it becomes more of a personal preference and compromise to like what you want to serve and the kind of texture you expect. You know, I think there's an overemphasis on tenderness in general. Uh, I personally like, you know, chewing my food. So I prefer a lot of foods that, you know, require a little more, I guess, chewing. <laughs> And that's not for everybody, and I get that. So, you know, anything like wood duck and smaller, I'll do whole if I can, if it's not shot up. Um, obviously, if I want to do two different applications with, like, the dark meat and the light meat or the breast and the legs, that's a different thing. But I do Peking some bigger ducks and some smaller geese, and I do those whole you know, it's like a week long process of like marinating and air drying and all that. But uh, the Peking, the Peking duck style. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like that's and that's an application that like most people have not seen or had done well. Right. You know, it's like you take a six or eight pound Canada goose, serve it whole, chop it up a little bit, you know, just to make it easy. But you're killing leg- uh, you're killing lesser Canada geese in, in Virginia. Uh, we get a very big size variety. Uh, I'm not 100% sure if they're lessers because – Well, if they're six pounds, they're lessers. Really? Yeah, because, I mean, all all graders are, are 10 pounds or better. Uh, I'm going to have to double check on that with um, well, next time I'm in the field. But, you know, I don't, I don't think these are lessers. I think they're just really young, like normal ones. Because the, we, our range is anywhere between like six and I think the biggest one we've killed is probably like 12. So kind of. A yeah, sh- there are 13 different place. subspecies of Canada geese. I don't know which ones live in Virginia. Yeah. So, you know, I might be wrong about that. But, you know, the the legs cooked whole are obviously going to be a lot tougher than if you can feed them or you braise them or anything else along those lines for sure but but you know after hanging out in the fridge for a few days or hanging whole and kind of tenderizing itself 
cross cut you know it's a little chewier than what people would expect but i think it's a nice uh, contrast and texture with the breast meat which is you know going to be very tender what's a tip that you would give to a listener out there on cooking whole birds um if it's a little if it's bigger than a wood duck i would say definitely age it you know that time for the bacteria and enzymes to kind of like break down the connective tissue is very important um, I'm pretty sure you've written about that a few times, but aging a bird goes a long ways. Um, and also it depends on personal preference. Ultimately, like if you don't like chewing stuff and chewy meats and things that aren't, you know, butter soft, then it's, you know, don't do it. You know, you're not going to enjoy the process or the product rather. I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hank Shaw t-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes, hats, and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook logo on them. If you use the code HANKSHAW at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast. Let's talk wobbly bits, because I'm a huge evangelist for what Chef Chris Cosentino likes to call the fifth quarter, the, the, the everything that is not regular meat. So, I, I mean, with, with, this conversa- with this conversation, we're talking about giblets. So gizzards, kidneys, um, hearts, and livers primarily. So what are your – what would you – suggest for someone listening out there to do with them for starters if they're a new a newcomer and then what what are some of the things that you like to do when you have free reign to do whatever it is that you want to do start with laurie i'll be honest i don't wouldn't serve him any different so if i'm having you know people over for supper they've likely never eaten any of that before so you get the opportunity to serve up liver or hearts and liver has always been a a very traditional common meal here so people are very familiar with eating liver but definitely not like rabbit liver or you know an otter duck liver is it back to your it's it's almost inedible so but, you know, um, rabbit liver and, and, and ptarmigan and partridge liver, I don't do much with it. Look, I just, you know, sometimes fry it up crispy but not overcook it because it gets grainy, as you know, with liver. Mm-hmm. So um, just kind of blushing, although I do love to make rabbit liver pate. Um, and that that's always mixes it up for people. So that would be the probably the one thing that, you know, if I have free reigns, I'd do like a, a liver pate. Um, but it's often just fried up with onions and, you know, finished with a bit of cognac or something in the pan and yeah, and nice crusty toast. I think that's always a easy introduction to people for people who've never really eaten that stuff before and chop it up really tiny so that they're not getting the texture. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like Wade was saying for us, I like to chew my meat. Um, and you know, the tenderloin or the backstrap on anything to me is not the most delicious part of it. Um, but, you know, little rabbit backstraps all fried up with liver is, is amazing. And so it's a great introductory introduction to, uh, for people. What about gizzards? Don't do much with them, but I'll be honest. I, last time we had a pile of, 
uh, ducks. I I took them and froze them, vacuum packed them all in hopes I was going to do something with them. But I, I didn't do it. <laughs> My womp, confession. Womp. I, I know. Sorry. I know because I know you're big on the gizzards. But I am very big Traditionally here, like uh, the old people would bottle everything. I don't know if you guys bought like it was known as cannon, I suppose. But here we call it bottling. It's done in mason jars. Mm-hmm. And just we do too. The top. Yeah. Okay. So that stuff was often bottled. Like the those those bits were bottled. And uh, and then it was taken into woods you know, when you went in hunting and stuff. Right. And the old people loved that stuff. Right. They, you know, no, I mean, no one eats that stuff today here. <laughs> that's, the, that's the biggest problem. That's why people are not paying attention to, you know, the conservation and the hunting, the hunting laws and stuff, because it really it don't affect what's on their plate. Right. And and we all know how much that stuff, you know, not paying attention can affect how rules and regulations are changed and then our, our ability to get to, to, you know, acquire these meats. So, yeah, it's too bad. It's it's like you and, you know, Wade and me, it's. There's a certain number of people who are out there pushing for it, um, and I think it's up to us to kind of present it in the best way we can, so that it becomes more palatable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wade, how, how do you handle your wobbly bits? Um, well, the hearts I treat like um, any other tender piece of meat. You know, I keep it real simple. Like I like direct heat on bird hearts in particular, just because they're so small. Like every year we do a dove hunt at this farm and there's a bunch of uh i guess feral um garlic chives growing and there's usually some scapes around that time of the year so i skewer all the dove hearts with that and just grill that over fire um that's one of the better meals of the year that's cool but um livers you know as an intro for people that don't eat a lot of liver or don't particularly like liver or have a you know bias against it I like mixing it into sausages or, you know, dirty rice or, you know, somewhere where it adds a little bit of depth, but it's not the predominant flavor because, I mean, for me personally, I like a little bit of liver, but I don't like eating a lot of it. Um, I've never been fortunate enough to uh, shoot a bird that has a, uh, like a flaw-like texture in the liver. So Come to California, man. We got I know. I know. That's (laughs) something I want to do. But, um. You know, if somebody says they like liver or they like pate, then I think pate is a perfect application for bird livers and small game livers. You know, it's like they're a lot milder than, say, your venison. And it's they're usually in a quantity that where you can make a batch of pate and not have a bunch left over. You know, like two or three yeah. turkey livers is a perfect amount of pate. You know, like I'll eat that throughout the week with Rachel and then we're like. I'm good. You know, like that's as much butter and liver as I want for that week or two. Right. But um, gizzards are actually one of my favorite little bits. And again, for like introducing people to it, I like to braise it or confit it and get it kind of tender because I think a gizzard texture is uh, very acquired. You know, like you have to really like gizzards and chewing your food if you don't tenderize it. Um, it works well in soups, gravies, things like that. But um, one of my guilty pleasures is I just slice it crosswise and bread it and fry it and make a bunch of buffalo sauce. Like that's one of my. Oh, that's a cool idea. See, that yeah. sounds awesome. Yeah, it's one of my favorite like late season, you know, like cold as hell, you know, meals for myself kind of thing. I just make a bunch of those, make some really thick ranch dipping sauce and. You know, just hose it. 
Nice. What am, why are you watching the Redskins lose? Or uh, sorry, the Washington football team lose? Yeah, I don't, luckily I'm not a fan. Who is? I I don't want to get into that. <laughs> uh, so my I have uh, some signatures that I do with with giblets. One you mentioned, which is Cajun Dirty Rice. Um, it is my opinion that there is no other giblet or or awful dish that is more accessible to more people than Cajun dirty rice, no matter whether you do it with big game or small game, because what makes it dirty is you really almost pureed the liver because you you can't really see it. It just adds that depth that you mentioned. Uh, And then you mince up the the gizzards and the hearts. And so it's basically like, Oh, meat. Oh, Cajun flavor. Oh, rice. Oh, vegetables. This is fantastic. And I, I really that is one. Cajun boudin is another one, um, which is basically like Cajun, like dirty rice stuck in a, stuff in a casing and either steamed or smoked. But the signature thing that I kind of hit upon, oh God, it's got to be 10 years ago now, is to corn gizzards, like corned beef. Ooh. And, I, and I shoot buckets of waterfowl. So I, I typically do this with waterfowl gizzards because they're bigger than partridges. Um, so you have a bunch of cleaned gizzards and you corn them, you know, as if you corn beef, and then you put them in a slow cooker. You could do this sous vide. This is actually a sous vide application, but typically I'll just put it in a crock pot in, you know, duck broth or whatever and put it on high or low, depending on your, your slow cooker and leave it for 24 hours. That's the key. If you leave it for 24 hours and then you take it out, you can squash them with a fork. They're the perfect corned beef color. And there is literally nobody on the planet Earth other than a vegetarian who would not like this. Is it like a tongue texture when you like a well, like a braised tongue then? It's not as silky. Okay, because uh, it's fat, right? There's not... Yeah, yeah, because right, tongue right. meat has a lot of internal fat that you can't even see. Right. That's um, what makes it so delicious. Oh, it does. <laughs> By the way, tongue. I do I do crispy fried duck tongues for Super Bowl every year. Oh my god. And it's it's trippy. So I save all the the tongues from big ducks and geese, and you braise them until again you can do it in a crock pot if you feel like it, but you can do it in a Dutch oven as well until they're tender, right? Well, what you don't know about duck tongues, what most people don't know about duck tongues, you guys probably know, is that there's a bone in them. And you have to remove this bone while they're still warm. So you take them out. Oh, it's tender. And then you kind of grab the bone by the, the where the tongue is based and just pulls right out. It looks really weird. Um, but you do this and then you – this is super chefy. And this is – I'm totally admitting that this is a long <laughs> walk for a cup of coffee, but it's delicious. So you braise the tongues. You take the bone out. Uh, and then you dehydrate them about 50% of the way so that they're leathery. The reason you do this, because if you've ever, have you guys ever fried pig ears? Yeah. Yep. Right. Have you ever tried to fry a pig ear that was still wet? No. They, ex- <laughs> they explode. And so your tongues will, is going to explode the same way because it's got a lot of collagen in it and fat. And so it goes, bam. And then there's this 350 degree oil coated tongue flying across the room, uh, <laughs> which is not ideal. And, <laughs> and so Does that's what you, Sorry. That's why you dehydrate them. And so then when you fry them, they become chicharrones. Yeah. So they'll, they'll, 
tough when you fry them after this process. And a bowl of those with, you know, insert ranch dressing or whatever the hell you want to put next to it, you can put it fancy or not. They're amazing. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Admittedly, it's a long walk for a cup of coffee, but it's, it's okay. Good. That's what we're into. <laughs> I know, I know. So tell me, I mean, along those lines, you guys must have some out out there dish that you do that you're that you're just gonna do because it's the result is amazing, but it's it it too is a long walk of a cup of coffee. So what about you, Laurie? Do you have some like yeah, I do this because it's amazing and I don't care. Yeah, I, well, I mean, I haven't spent much as much time now in, uh, in the kitchen as Wade have, but so there's not a lot of that I do. But every Christmas, I I'll do my wild game terrines, and you know, it's it's days of making a rabbit stock and boiling it down and getting a super you know rich jus from it, and then it's boiling down the pork bones to get the collagen, and then so I have you know bags of collagen and bags of it, it, it's a process, right? And then you get a mixture of I'll usually use the the dark meat on the rabbit legs and then I'll use um some grouse in there and some moose in there. So yeah, it's this the terrine. I love it. I love terrine. Like yeah, it's just it's gorgeous and, and it lasts long and it's you know, it's that fancy thing that you break out at Christmas, right? To show your how impressive how impressive you can be. <laughs> it's funny, I do the same thing. I do a game terrine for Christmas every year too. It's just it's I think it's a thing. It's a thing. I'm not gonna make it in July. It's like it's Christmas. <laughs> Although weirdly, they are amazing in July. Like I made one in, I don't know, not, I don't know if it was July, but it was in the summer. And a big, thick, you know, a good two finger thick slice of terrine stuck in your cooler when you're out fishing on oh, the water. Man. Pull that out and you put on a piece of bread or, or a saltine. And <laughs> it's damn good. Yeah. How do you, Wade? I think the, uh, the picking duck slash goose is probably like the most complicated thing I make, you know, like that's only for special occasions. You know, I have friends over, or, you know, it's like, it has to be like pre-planned, you know, like it's a seven day process or whatever. So that's probably the only thing I do like that. Um, I do a lot of sh- dry age charcuterie. Um, it's not really the same because that time that you have to wait is kind of built in. Like, you know, I've got a bunch of beaver hams hanging that are going to be about a year out. So that's 40. Yeah. Those are, uh, I, we did taste test them and uh, they're, they're looking really good. That's nice. super cool. A beaver ham. All right. You've got, you got me on that one. I've never done a beaver ham. <laughs> yeah, no, it's um surprisingly um, similar to Emberica right now. Like it is, just super rich and has a lot of depth and it has that kind of like earthy acorny um just i don't know it's it's hard to describe you know but i think if you had it you would you would know exactly what i'm talking about cool all right so that is a weird success tell me about a weird failure um let's see the first time i tried to make fish sauce um, <laughs> I have the same problem. Yeah. I undersalted it. Yeah, I I had a hard time nailing down salt percentages because everybody's doing it a little bit different. I think there's a hesitation to publish um, a recipe. I'm not sure, but just because it seems like the established recipes call for an incubator and a shorter you know cure time, 
or fermentation time rather. So I just kind of like took a bunch of different recipes and blended them together into one. And I, it's just, it's still sitting on my, uh, my bench in my basement. Like I haven't touched it in over a year and a half. It's just, it's too scary. You know, like I'm not <laughs> sure what went wrong or if it's wrong, it's kind of dry looking. It smells okay, but it looks really weird. And I wasn't hundred percent confident, um, going into it. So I'm probably never going to touch that. You know, it's probably going to get sealed up and put in a bag somewhere. Thrown into the Chesapeake. Yeah. That's a pretty good one. Uh, Laurie. Uh, the failure was, oh, I, I'm just going to share the other exciting thing that we recently just did. Actually, we did a, sure. a salami in a deboned duck and we were so skeptical and it was like, this is going to fail because you have to make your salami and put your cure in it. And then I wasn't sure if I should cure the whole duck first or just put it all together in hopes that the cure went through it. Anyway, it was amazing. So that was my. Uh, well, like a dry cured galantine? Yeah. Yeah. We did. Wow. Uh, it was the black duck and and uh, deboned it and stuffed pork and moose sausage inside it. There's a picture of it on my Instagram, actually. It was fun. It was amazing. I was, we were shocked because we kept weighing it. I was like, oh, this is with the duck fat. This is never going to dry out to get to the proper weight. But it did. Um, failure was the eider duck um, breast prosciutto. I mean, that that was that was not happy experiment. It oh, was well, a, come on. There's going to be some newfies who would like that. Like, oh, nice and fishy. <laughs> well, no. But, you know, I dried it to the point then where I could shave it. And then it became like an interesting umami. Still wasn't. I still didn't have an application for it, but it was it was an interesting journey. <laughs> I bet you do you still have it? No, I threw it out. Oh, see, what I would do is I would dry the hell out of it and use it like dashi. Well, that's what like I did. The, yeah, like yeah, the I tried it. Yeah, it was rock hard, and then we just we used it as a shaped dish. Tried it on fish, tried it on scallops, and the the cured moose tongue too was also a disaster. Oh, yeah, that's, that's a bummer. Totally, that's a big piece of meat. Yeah, and I love it cured. I love like to make corn moose tongue, but anyway. <laughs> I, I think probably the most – I haven't had a lot of really bad failures with upland birds. Um, I, I think – I'll just – one real quick one, and then I'll tell you the real failure. Um, the real quick one is if you're going to cook pigeons or doves, you have to either cook them lightly – which is to say that the breast meat is still quite pink or cook the ever living crap out of them. So there's no, there's no in between. It's like squid. So you either cook squid for like 30 seconds or two hours. And if you really, really, really cook pigeons so that the breast meat can, can collapse because pigeon and dove breast meat is the most dense bird breast in, in my experience of any species in the world. It's it's because they can fly at 95 miles an hour. Um, so if you you really 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 have to cook it for hours and hours and hours and hours for it to be to be to for it to work. If you don't cook it medium rare, which is what I prefer, that's number one. The real failure is again like the eider. So I hate wasting meat as as you guys do too. So I have tried and tried and tried to be able to cook sea duck legs. Mm-hmm without it being like oh that's sort of like anchovies that have been sitting on the deck for for six hours <laughs> it's, it's because the internal fat right so like even though the legs are skinned 
they have these little pockets of fat that you just can't you just can't really get around. I mean, yes, you could cook them in like chili or something that has an amazingly strong flavor. Maybe you could do it in paella where you had other seafood things, but that's one I've not, I've, that's blocked me. And the other one is coot legs. So coot legs, you see coots, if you've never eaten them, are, they're not fishy, but they're pondy. They're very much like the muskrats of the air. Um, which is to say not very good. Now, coot breasts are fine. I, I eat them anytime I have them, you know, the skinned, of course. But the legs, again, with the, with the pondy fat in the, you know, internally in that, in that leg. And coots, as you know, are walking birds. So they have sinews every bit as strong as a pheasant, but they're smaller and they don't taste as good. So that's another one I've, been, I've just not really been able to have something that I genuinely like out of the legs out of a coot. And other than that, you know, I'm trying to think, is there another, an- well, muskrats in general, that would be a, a small game animal that I'm like, I don't need to kill another one. Right. I think that for the saltwater ducks, I don't know. I think we need to stop thinking of it as a duck and start treating it like a piece of seafood <laughs> and all, change although, our approach on it. Surf scoters, if you shoot, we shoot a lot of surf scoters. They have the ones with the, they have the, the candy corn on their faces. Um, they skin really easy. And when they're skinned, their breast meat is, there is nothing wrong with that breast meat. Oh, nice. I, I've not yet killed an eider though. So maybe they could be different. They're, the beauty of the eiders is so big. Mm-hmm. It's such a gorgeous big bird and the breasts are enormous on it. But then it's, you know, like you say, you hate, I hate to waste it. And so I don't, I don't take many of them because I just, uh, yeah, I hate the wastage on them. Yeah, I was going to say we might have to collaborate on the sea duck conundrum here because <laughs> I never shoot any sea ducks. You know, it's not something I actively try to do. Um, but I have cooked some that people have gifted me. And I had an idea um, after cooking some uh, merganzers. And experimenting with how to get them not fishy and, you know, removing the skin, removing the fat and all that. The answer um, is to not shoot mergansers. Agreed. <laughs> but if you don't apply any heat, the uh, the internal fats don't ever oxidize, so you never get any of those off flavors. Huh. Like we tried eating some uh, hooded merganser just raw, just shaved like sashimi, and it tastes side by side just like any other duck. Um, so I've made jerky at low temps. And you don't get any of those off flavors either. Wow. That's a good tip. So I think, you know, using that as a base for the answer, you know, not applying heat like a dry cured salami with right. duck legs or, you know, coot legs or anything like that. That's going to have that internal fat and that sinew that can be broken up with a grinder. You know, that might be the ticket to maximizing, you know, the enjoyment out of that. Hmm. That's a good work. Tip. We have work to do. <laughs> yeah, because all three of us shoot sea ducks. All right. How about uh, hey, let's do a, like a question round. You guys ask a question of either the other person or me, and then we'll go around. Like, I think I want to ask. Uh, I'm going to start with like Wade. So your parents came from Vietnam. Where? In Vietnamese cuisine, have you found the greatest marriage of what you do now versus that that cuisine? 
I would say it's uh, less about the cuisine and more about how my parents had adapted their the cuisine to their life in the States. You know, like they wanted to cook the food they grew up with, but not all the ingredients were available. So we worked with what they worked with, what was seasonally available to them, you know, in central Virginia. So I saw that first generation adaptation you know, up front, uh, you know, we made do with what we had. We tried to grow what we didn't have. And until, you know, international markets and whatnot became a little more popular or we made it to a bigger city to pick up on, pick up, you know, I guess, staple ingredients of Vietnamese food. You know, it was just everything was already an adaptation. And I think that's where I get so much of my inspiration for food is like, I'm not trying to make whatever authentic dish there is i'm trying to use what's readily available to me or seasonally available and make what i want that's a good call that's a good call wade you you get to ask either me or laurie something um all right i'll ask you hank um being in your region what is i guess an ingredient or protein or something that you do not have that you wish you did have access to uh it's easy i ate it just the other day hen of the woods mushrooms mm. oh yeah yep Grifola frondosa does not live uh west of the the rockies to my knowledge and it certainly does not live in california so hen of the woods mushrooms number one woodcock number two easy like those are two it's funny because a, a lot of us here in the west in california in specific a lot of it is like that kid from the simpsons you don't have it. <laughs> uh, you know, like I do this crab salad in, in Christmas time that is incredibly California centric because we eat our crab for Christmas. So it's Dungeness crab, pomegranate seeds, persimmons, and avocado, all of which are in high season in December in California. And the whole rest wow. of the continent's like, go kick rocks, you bastard. And, <laughs> and so it's a, it's a that's a dish that you know, where we have this and we have that. And David Chang's famous gripe about California cuisine, he just put a fig in the plate to which every California chef said, hey, David, if you had figs as good as us, you wouldn't dick with it either. <laughs> so uh, so I think we get complacent in thinking that we have everything. And east of the Rockies has any number of ingredients that are that we don't have. You know, for one thing. Uh, Lori, you have lingonberries, which I believe is what mm -hmm. you're calling partridge berries. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So lingonberries are one of the world's greatest ingredients. and We don't have them. We don't have woodcock. Um, and we do not have uh, hen of the woods would be the first three things that would just roll off the top of my head. I'm surprised Lori. soft shell crabs didn't make that list. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, good point. I mean, yes, I would add that. Um, but I think I would rather eat a dozen woodcock than I would a dozen softshell crabs. Now that could change in May, but I'm kind of in wild game mode right now, but yes, that's a good, that's another really good one. Lori, you're up. Um, well, I'll put this one to both of you. What is your comfort game dish? You know, like your comfort as in your turkey dinner and Thanksgiving, but what is your comfort game dish? Wade, you go first. Um, it's going to have to be pho. Um, nice. I make it, 
I make it with basically any kind of uh, bones that we have. So, you know, goose or duck or venison or beaver, um, anything. I always make a big batch. I can it. And anytime we're really cold or we're feeling rough or, you know, get back for some traveling, you know, like a bunch of Thai basil, cilantro, shisho, some, you know, rare meat, that broth, that's usually the fix all. The best. Interesting. So I have two answers to that. I've got, I've got the, what do I cook when it's Wednesday and I'm tired and I don't really feel like cooking? And the answer are skin on duck breasts in a, in a pan. <laughs> like, I think I have cooked maybe a hundred thousand. I don't know. That might be an exaggeration, but, but many thousands of skin on duck breasts in a pan, typically not even with any other fat because they're so fat to begin with and salts, black pepper, and a squeeze of the lemon from my tree in the backyard. Like that's, I I know my California. That's fast food. Yeah. It's fast food. It's amazing. It is a steak with a hat made of bacon. Oh my God. That's beautiful. (laughs) Right. So that's, that's like one answer. Second answer though, along the line of, of Wade though is red sauce. So yeah. I've written about this a couple of times and real deal Italian, Southern Italian, New Jersey pasta sauce with chopped meat, which is New Jersey slang for ground meat. Um, I grew up calling it chopped meat. So chopped meat and a lot of tomatoes, some red wine, more garlic than you think. Like all the red sauce that you see in every single mafia movie, that's what I grew up with. And I have made that with ground everything. And it is a thing that I can make without thought. It's a thing that I have made for girlfriends. It's a thing that I've made when I'm really, really sad. And that's the dish that if I'm going to be kind of introspective and I need it and I need a, a culinary hug, it's going to be my red nice. sauce. How about you? You answer your own question. Um, wow. I don't know, because now I'm just hungry thinking about having phone spaghetti sauce for supper. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if it's a, so much a comfort, but I do love um, the moose, you know, like a nasabuco, right? So mm. that was a cut of meat that we were never able to get here. Most Lots of people in Newfoundland, moose is ground it's just like ground and sausages and, you know, obscure steaks that no one ever does anything with. So when I started getting involved in the hunt, it, I wanted these particular cuts. I'm like, well, if, you know, when I, and I was butchering and also I was learning that, okay, this is where the cuts come from. So it's a moose. It must have the same cuts. So these are the cuts I want. And I started getting the legs cut into two inch um, rounds because normally that would all be just taken off the bone and ground. And so, yeah, I would say the moose asabuco, like that rich, yeah, that rich comfort smell, lots of red wine, more garlic than sensible. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. I've done that with elk. I've never shot a moose yet. So I have to come mm. to Newfoundland to shoot a moose. Well, there you go. Another <laughs> reason. I think, uh, I think we're, I want to do one kind of round robin and then we'll, we, we can probably close. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours, but. I want to be cognizant of your time and and my listeners' time as well. But before we kind of wrap it up, give the listeners two or three 
cooking tips that uh, that apply to small game. They don't have to be specific to small game, but they have to be applicable to, say, upland birds or rabbits or squirrels or whatever. Two or three things that you need to know to be a better cook of those particular critters. Start with Wade. Um, let's see. Um, I think a tip that works across the board for all food and particularly proteins, but really well for small game is like understanding what you're after. You know, if, like if you want it tender, then you have to approach it in a way where it's like, I'm going to make this tender, whether it be, you know, a sous vide or confit or traditional braise or anything along those lines like you can't force things like you were talking about earlier with the whole bird like you're not going to roast a whole mallard and have the legs tender and the breasts medium rare at the same time you know it's like just understanding what you're after and then figuring out a way to get that you know it's more problem solving than it is this recipe is going to fix everything kind of thing um i think also being able to age and or judge the texture of your small game or large game is uh, really important you know like early birds um are not as fatty as late season birds around here you know like once they're in the fields and eating soy and corn for two or three weeks they're a very different bird and i think reading the terrain and understanding the time of year and the seasonality of the ingredient, I think goes a long ways. Um, and I think if you have the, uh, if you have the space and the climate for it, I think aging, aging animals goes a long ways. Like it really does help. You know, there's almost all commercial, meat is aged to a certain point you know maybe not chickens but you know beef has to hang for a certain amount of time everything does better to hang and let that rigor uh, relax and just let the enzymes and the bacteria in the in the meat just do its thing good deal Lori. my approach is going to be to tell people that go with the long and slow cuts for if you're an introductory, you know, if this, this is new to you, cooking game meat, start with the long and slow cuts because they're harder to our stuff, right? So go with your asabuco, go with your, your, your ground meat, your, you know, your rich spaghetti sauces, um, your long stews and like things like pho even, you know, um, go with stuff that, yeah, it's just, it's, it's harder to screw up because you're going to get a taste for the meat. You're going to get a taste for its accessibility. And, um, you know, it just gives you a good introduction to it. Cause once you have bad game, you're not in likely to go back and try it a different way. So making sure that your first introduction to it is, uh, yeah, is a good one. <laughs> Don't overthink it too much. <laughs> yeah, definitely. People do overthink game a lot. Anything yeah, else? No, that's it. <laughs> All right. Well, I have a few. Actually, I have more than a few because I write books about this subject, but I'll that's leave right. it to a few. Uh, <laughs> number one, and this is iron rule for all, all cooking of any kind, no matter what it is. Ready? You can always cook it more. You can't uncook something. So if you're nervous, if 
you think you're going to screw it up, you can check it and then keep cooking it. This is a this is a big deal with things that you want to make tender. Oh, I'm cooking this duck breast. Well, you, it ended up being black and blue, right? So it looks like it's cooked in the outside, but it's ri- it's raw in the center. Check it. No babies will die if you cook it more after checking it. You can't uncook something. And if you cook to that grayness, ducks or doves or sharp-tailed grouse or ptarmigan, blah. But if undercook it, and you can always cook it more. So that's number one. Number two, virtually everybody who is new to this cooks the tough parts too little and the tender parts too much. So this is a sort of a, a building off the last tip. If you are worried about a breast or a backstrap or any other tender part, like I said, you could cook it more. And err on cooking it less because you can cook it more. This is the single biggest problem I see with things like pheasant and rabbits and anything where people are like, oh, well, you know, it was dry and chalky. Well, you cook that pheasant breast too much or you cook that that roughed grouse breast too much. And, oh, you can't possibly eat turkey legs or you can't possibly eat, you know, the legs or wings of anything or a jackrabbit or a a hare. Well, that's because it's a tough part that you did not cook enough. Virtually, in fact, nothing, nothing will stay tough forever. Everything will submit. Sometimes it will take two hours. The world record in my experience was a five-year-old rooster, like an actual chicken, like not a, not a pheasant, a five-year-old rooster that I wanted to make cocovan with, it took seven hours, seven hours for it to become tender. But it did. It invented. It did. So the the tough parts you can always cook more. The last tip that is specific to birds, and this really specific to upland birds, uh, it does apply a little bit to waterfowl, but not really so much because waterfowl don't do a lot of walking. But for upland birds, specifically wild turkeys and pheasants, as you collect them and if you break them down, which is I highly recommend you do with a few exceptions, always take shears or a knife and separate the thighs from the drumsticks so that you have a big old packet of thighs and then a big old packet of drumsticks. And you can, you can collect those in your freezer until you have enough to do a dish because they cook radically differently. A thigh has exactly one bone. It's one bone. It's the femur. They will get tender and they, you can eat them very easily and they're a joy. They are in fact the greatest part of, of any bird to eat. When I was a teenager and in my twenties and I was dating someone, almost the first question I would ask on that first date, it wouldn't be the first question, but it would be that first night. We like, Hey, you like chicken, right? She, everyone likes chicken, so she says yes. What kind of what part of the chicken do you like the best? If she said thighs, she's a keeper, or at least she's worth the second date, <laughs> right? If she says skinless, boneless chicken breasts, she I don't know, I don't know, man. I, I might not be able to trust you. Drumsticks, especially with wild animals, as most people listening to this podcast know, are filled with sinews 
that will never break down ever, 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 ever. They just won't. So the drumsticks have to kind of be slow cooked and shredded. And there is nothing wrong with putting the thighs in with the drumsticks if your intention is to shred everything, but you don't have to. And you can enjoy particularly special, wonderful meals with just a pack of thighs that you would not be able to do with just drumsticks. So those would be my three big tips. I mean, I, I think all of us could kind of go on and on with like, hey, I knew this and this is really good, but that should get you started. One last go around and then we'll, we'll close it out. Plucking. Do you, I mean, people who listen to this podcast have heard me go on and on and on and on about plucking because, you know, I, I, I invented the hashtag give a pluck. Um, what would be your tips to listeners on plucking upland birds? Three days in the fridge. And I think I learned that from you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it's true. Three days in the fridge. And don't, I mean, to to learn to pluck seabirds is a different kettle of fish. You're going to need some old guy next to you who knows what he's doing. (laughs) But yeah, um, that's it. That's my my advice on that. Because it works every time. And I think that came from a story you told about some some guy was getting these birds taxidermied and he said no you have you can't wait three days you have to they have to be here right away because in three days the feathers will be too um yeah they'll come out too easy yep they'll slip see there you go wait um again i don't have a ton of experience with the upland birds but i try to pluck doves that we doves pigeons you know those birds um while they're um fairly warm they seem to pluck really easy and with um waterfowl and things with down you know a few days in the walk-in or the fridge or you know hanging up in a cold shed usually makes the process a lot easier yep I, you know it's funny that you guys have had the, the same experience because i i drone on and on about the three days in the fridge thing because so many hunters who mean well want to pick their birds like the night after the hunt or the morning after the hunt, which is the singular worst time to actually do it. Well, this has been pretty awesome. I guarantee you we can we could we can talk for another hour, but we should let you go. Um, so Wade, if somebody wants to find you on the series of tubes that we call the internet, uh, where would they find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram, uh, Elevated Wild. It's our uh, Rachel and I's uh, account and our website, elevatedwild.com. Perfect. I will put a link to that in the show notes. Lori, you are Cod Sounds. Now, before you tell everybody where to find you at Cod Sounds, you have to tell people what is a Cod Sound. Uh, it's an air bladder in the fish. So it sounds disgusting, but you know, it's the thing that it's the buoyancy for the fish. But in Newfoundland, those were always the bits that were treasured. So the the cheeks, the tongues, the sounds. That was always the pieces that were left here for us, and we enjoyed them as family. And then the the, the rest of the salt cod was then sent overseas and, and salted for our own use. But that was the stuff that was cooked up fresh the minute it came up on the wharf. So, yeah, <laughs> that's the cod sound. And I can be found at Cod Sounds and personally at Eat It Wild and codsounds.ca. Codsounds.ca. All right. Thank you guys for being on the show. Um, I will put all of the links that you need that to, so that people can find you because you guys both do amazing work. And Thank God, you. it's just been all kinds of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Hank. 
That is our show. Thank you for hanging with us for such a long time. Quick shout out to Filson and Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the show. I am your host, Hank Shaw. And as always, you can follow me on social media. I am at Hunt Gather Cook on Instagram. And I run a Facebook group called Hunt Gather Cook. And the core of what I do is my website, and that is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. It is honest-food.net. You can also find it through huntgathercook.com, and that is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. It is the Internet's largest source of wild food recipes, not just upland game, but also big game and other small game, fish, mushrooms, edible wild plants, cooking techniques, and all of that kind of good stuff. So give it a look, and I hope to see you there. Until next week, take it easy, have fun out in the outdoors, shoot straight, eat well, and be safe. I'm Hank. Talk to you soon. Bye.